Well, family, it's great to be together today. Um, it is an amazing thing to think this is our church family. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, my wife and I haven't been here very long, um, only about a year now. Uh, and some of you I know are very, very recent by the sounds of things. It's a good family to be part of. We all need family, don't we? Um, and uh, that's been one of the things that the Queen has tried to do, isn't it? Holding her own family together hasn't been very easy for her. And so some here, you know, your own families, nuclear families, have not been places or always a people who are, are full of admiration for each other, encouragement to each other, and infinite love for each other. Much forgiveness is needed in most families. And she's had to practice that. And she talks about the inspiration for forgiveness being the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Um, and at the same time, she's tried to hold the nation together, almost as a family, or not just the nation of England, but actually the nations of the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth, as it now is, is largely because of her initiative in trying to make it a family of nations. Um, all, lots of us are uh, just like now. Um, Andy asked uh, uh, Tanuja about the, her, her thinking about the Queen. All of us have little stories of one sort or another, probably, don't we? This is my little story. I've got the, I've got the microphone so I can tell it. And those of you who are here uh, and those of you who are watching online... Uh, <clears throat> Anne's met the Queen in the sense that she was one of the 5,000 at one of the Buckingham Palace garden parties. Uh, Anne's parents met the Queen in that my father-in-law was the Archdeacon of Lynn, which meant that he was invited to preach at Sandringham once when the Queen was in residence, and they went round to Sandringham to have lunch with her and the Corgis afterwards. And... Uh, but I've never met the Queen, I, but this is my story. I was leading a new wine leaders retreat in Scotland, and the place was in the neighbouring estate to the Balmoral estate. So we, I asked the host whether they ever met the Queen, and they said, oh yes, quite regularly, she's out and about on the estate and in the village, and we sometimes bump into her, and actually we dine with her from time to time. So I said, so what's the conversation like? And he said, well, last autumn, I thought I'd draw her on her faith a little bit. So I said to her, Your Majesty, you'll never guess what I did last summer. And she said, no, no, I won't. Tell me. So he said, well, I had a week in a caravan. Uh, What on earth made you do that? (laughs) She said. And his reply was, well, I was at an Anglican Christian holiday conference where we were learning what it means to follow Jesus today. She she, she said something along the lines, how many people were there? He said, well, over two weeks, there were over 20,000 people. Really? She said. Why hasn't anybody ever told me about this before? After all, this is my church. That reflects her faith and her commitment to trying to keep people in touch, not just as members of a church family, but in touch with the King of Heaven. And it's been so interesting to see the way in which so many people on the television have had to speak about her faith because she has spoken about her faith. And you cannot do justice to remembering her without speaking about the foundation of her life, which was as she says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I've got one or two quotes from the Queen as we go along. Uh, But I've been in touch as a result of this week and earlier in the summer holidays uh, with mortality. 
It is the 100% statistic, friends. Um, as Andy said last week, in a way that was not <laughs> known to him to be prophetic, but which is as true for kings and queens as it is for you and I, everything goes back in the box. And at the time, it struck me because uh, four and a half weeks ago, we, uh, my sister died in flight on the way back from England to Namibia where she lived with her Namibian husband. And he woke up for breakfast and discovered that my sister next to him was not breathing any longer. So I had the trauma of seeing the attempt of the medics to resuscitate her, proving unsuccessful, and then landing in Namibia and knowing he was facing the rest of his life without her. And so we have uh, had our fair share of tears in our family even prior to this week. Then uh, on Tuesday, I went to play a game of golf and a few holes in practice for a match I had on uh, Friday. And as I arrived, it was all very quiet and the crow's shop was closed, 4.30 in the afternoon. I thought, where, where, why is this? And then short while I, later, I met somebody and they said, somebody's had a heart attack on the, on the course. And then a short while later, the, a cortege of police cars and ambulances left and the man had just died on the tee, on the, eight, on the eighth tee, on the golf course, 66. Uh, yesterday, we were sent a video of the funeral of a godly man that uh, was the church warden of the church where I was first working as a curate. And he um, was a man who <coughs> was really welcoming of everybody into the church. And so he welcomed me as a bachelor curate at the age of 25 and did what lots of people want to do with a bachelor they want to marry them off. So he um, invited a number of women to line up. Sirius, my first Sunday evening in the church, to line up to meet me. And he'd actually invited Anne to be in that lineup. And she had the guts to refuse. Uh, and she was the one I fell for a short time later. But he just died recently at the age of 88. And so yesterday, Anne and I watched his funeral service together. None of us knows when but we all know it will happen. And yet the reality is, few of us really prepare for it. And yet all of us are accountable. So the Queen, for me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. Accountability before God. And... One day we'll meet him face to face and we long for that statement, well done, my, my child, my good and faithful servant. But actually not many of us live each day in an anticipation that possibly today, but there will be a day. So we come to the psalm. <clears throat> we come to the psalm which basically uh, says in verse 1, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. This is the first of uh, three sermons, I think, about hungering and thirsting for God. And today I'm just using the imagery of thirst because I think actually thirst is an even greater pain and longing of our bodies than food. And pain actually provokes. And if you in any way feel thirsty feel dissatisfied and longing, that's a God-given thing, and it will never be satisfied apart from 
that union with God for which he created you and from which the enemy has torn you, but restoring to which is the purpose of Jesus coming. And so today, even now, I'm praying that he will stir a greater longing in us. And this is true in whatever stage of life we're in and in whatever place in life we're in, from the richest to the poorest, from the most visible to the most invisible to the most educated to the least educated, from nation to nation. It says at the end of that psalm, the king, even the king, will find that he has to rejoice and his source of joy is in God. There is nobody else that can bring to us life as it was meant to be lived than God himself and our relationship with him is made perfect in Jesus. And the psalm is written by the king and it speaks about all the things that he's experienced and he's longing for which are all to do with his relationship with God but it says in a dry and parched land. And whether you're feeling you're in a dry and parched land personally or whether you're in a dry and parched land spiritually in a sense and and it's interesting Andy has references in your workplace or your family or the nation in any and every place where there is not the full awareness of the presence of God it's still a dry and parched land compared to what God is longing for. Be encouraged friends. In two separate conversations, unsolicited or provoked by me, at the end of the first service, two people came up to me and basically told me a little story about a physical awareness of the presence of Jesus this morning in the service. The seat next to you is not empty. One man said to me, I felt Jesus sitting next to me this morning. One woman had a physical, as it were, sense of touch on her arm, opened her eyes, spoke to the woman next to her, asking, did you touch me? No, but I did see an angel coming beside you. This is the way God longs to make himself known to us. Whether we're on our own, in our homes, or whether we're gathered together as a family of God, this is God's longing. But sensing his presence and being satisfied by him sometimes takes time. Earlier this year, we were in a very parched land. Our lawn was brown like the picture on the right. Here's a little experiment of how quickly it takes for ground to absorb water. When the ground is moist already, the water is absorbed very quickly. When it's relatively dry, it's absorbed much more slowly, and you'll discover that the video will stop before the glass on the right, as you watch it, is absorbed at all. It takes time for us to soak in the presence of God such that we really are satisfied fully by him. The more frequently we are under the unction, as it were, the falling of the Holy Spirit, the easier it is to become aware of his presence and to hear his voice and know his direction. That's why it's quite exciting that we're going to have soaking worship times in the church in the weeks ahead. And even if you can't come every week, come occasionally. And even if you can't come at all, remember to soak in the presence of God at home. What I'd like us to do um, periodically through this sermon is to join in a little refrain. Uh, I'll, I'll come to that in just a moment. The thing is, there's always more. There is always more for all of us. Um, 
This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, that you may know him better. Does anybody here know God fully? Does anybody here know the Father as well as Jesus knew the Father? In that case, Lord, I want to know you better. I want to know you. We want to know you. Lord, may we know you better. So send your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you better. Sometimes I want that, you know, and sometimes, probably if I'm really honest, I'm not very conscious of that desire. And if you're like me, then this is the prayer from A.W. Tozer. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness. Anyone like that? Um, And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for more grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. And this is the refrain I want you to join in with. I've changed it from I to we. I am included in we. But actually when we start to pray this, rather than just when I pray it, something incredible could happen. So if you'd like to, can you join with me in saying this each time I put this slide up? And say, you God are our God. Earnestly we seek you. We thirst for you. Our whole being longs for you. And Lord, we really want that, that our whole being will long for you. Let me introduce you to someone we have named Sammy. Um, Anne said to me earlier this year, what are we going to give each other for our birthdays? There are a couple of months apart in the summer. And when your wife says that to you, you know she's got an idea already. So her idea was that we would get a little statue to put in the garden. So this is the said statue that we found in some reclamation yard. And we named her Sammy because I thought immediately she looks perhaps a little bit like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well might have looked. Not actually looking at Jesus, but looking slightly aside because she couldn't look into his eyes, perhaps like you and I sometimes. She's carrying a jug, which might have been the type of jug that was lowered into the well. And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. That's as true today as it was for her. If we really knew who he is and what he has to offer, we would ask him. And then we would discover that he gives us himself and everything that comes from knowing him. The queen, again, in the midst of her troubled times, she said, I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. She knew what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, ask and you'll receive. She asked, she drew from the well, and she received the living water of his comfort in difficult times. So, why don't we say it again? You, God, are our God, and we seek you.
We thirst for you. Our whole being longs for you. We live in a parched land. Uh, the two lines to think about are the red line going up and the blue line going down. Between 1983 and 2016, the red line is those who now say in this nation that they have no religion. The blue line is those who attend the Anglican Church regularly. If you project this into the future, this is what you get. Those dates now between uh, 2020 and, sorry, 2000 and 2020 are the blue dots at the top. Have you noticed the direction of travel? Unless something changes, by the year 2060, there will be no one in the Church of England. And that will be true of individual Anglican churches much sooner for some than others because the average age is so high that unless new people are converted to faith in Jesus Christ, the churches will be empty and the buildings will close. Can anything change that? Can anything change that? Only one. Again, you, God, are our God. Earnestly we seek you. We thirst for you. Our whole being longs for you. Earlier this summer, I went to New Wine with others from the church and thousands of others as well. And um, uh, John Tyson was doing the Bible teaching through the week. Uh, he's an American pastor. As a, in his early years as a, as a follower of Jesus, he was part of a church where they talked a lot about revival. It provoked an interest in him in revival, and more recently he's studied revivals in numbers of different places around the world. And more recently still, he's visited a number of those places where there have been such historic revivals that there's a sociologically visible and measurable impact upon the community or the nation where that revival has happened. There's thousands have come to faith in a short period of time. And he said he's trying to find the, the common thing in those revivals which, as it were, might have been the springboard or at the heart of revival. And various people would give different things. And his conclusion was this. God comes where he's welcomed. God comes wherever his people hunger and thirst for him. You'll recall one Christmas, some of you, the Queen talking about one of her favourite uh, carols in the bleak midwinter. It ends by asking, she said, a question of all of us who know the Christmas story of how God gave himself to us in humble service. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet... What I can, I give him. I give him my heart. All of us can do that. Lord, I welcome you. I give you and I ask you to fill my heart. And we can say it together. We give you our hearts. We welcome you and ask you to fill our hearts. Tozer again. I want the presence of God himself or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. I want all that God has or I don't want any of it. 
Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Belfast to work with the Bishop of Down and Dromore on a diocesan Bible week. I'm looking at Andy because I'm imagining him thinking what that might look like in the Edmonton area of London. And um, each night, a different group of people who were licensed to work in the diocese in one way or another were invited to come, and they uh, renewed their vows, and then I spoke and we invited people for prayer. It was deeply moving um, to see numbers of people in their clergy robes come forward to reconsecrate themselves and ask others to pray with them to be filled afresh with the Spirit of God to do the work that God was calling them to do. So, but in the light of having heard um, uh, John Tyson speak and going to Belfast, I thought I would look up something about the Ulster prayer revival in the mid-19th century. And what I discovered was that this man, James O'Quilgin, was converted and within a year started to meet to pray in his community with three other people. So there were four in the prayer meeting in, in, that he was part of within the first year of getting converted. Um, by the end of the following year, there were 50 people in the prayer meeting. And in mid-1959, there were 100 prayer groups meeting in hit that area and many more further afield. And by the end of the year, 100,000 people had been converted to faith in Jesus in Ireland, which was 10% of the population of the time. Before the, before the revival, um, sorry, I just need to look at that. Before the revival, it was said, uh, a minister said, our condition was deplorable. Uh, don't, don't think that Andy is necessarily thinking this about you, but this is what they said then. We were dead, cold, prayerless, worldly. Two times I tried a prayer meeting with elders, but failed. The people did not only not want to pray, they were almost hostile towards prayer meetings. They thought we were doing fine and that I was unnecessarily disturbing them. After the prayer meeting, after those people were converted, this is what another minister wrote. It were worth living 10,000 ages in obscurity and reproach to be permitted to engage in the glorious work of the last six months of 1859. Some of you may have watched the, um, some of the programs about the Queen on the television. On Friday evening, uh, there was one of them that I was sort of half watching. And um, the, one of the ministers of one of the churches in the area where if Balmoral was asked about the Queen, and his reflection was that she based her life in prayer. And what she couldn't understand was why everybody else didn't do so in the same way. Uh, some of you will know the name, David and Mary Pitchers, they're the people who were, he was a, a, the vicar of St. Andrew's Chorley Wood, and it was through him and from Chorley Wood that the New Wine uh, movement began. If you ask him what was the key to the change in his life, uh, sorry, in the church's life and to the start of New Wine, he says it's the daily prayer meeting that we had at 7 o'clock every weekday morning. 
Friends, isn't it an incredible thing that this coincides with the daily prayer meeting by Zoom for CCB at 7 o'clock in the morning? Now, you won't be able to get there every day, but I do encourage you to come sometimes. Oh, my. Imagine, imagine God doing again something like he did in the prayer revival in Ulster that was mirrored in Wales, that was mirrored in North America, and hundreds of thousands of people coming to faith. This is why we say, again, you, God, are our God. Earnestly we seek you. We thirst for you. Our whole being longs for you. So I was on the tube this week, as one does. Um, I was doing the Sudoku, or the crossword, or one or the other, I can't remember. Others were on their phones. And a couple of people were rather noisily talking to each other on the other side. Um, Not quite opposite me, nearly opposite me. And next to them was an elderly woman, that means about my age, who was uh, reading a book. And I thought, I'm sure I know what that book is. And then uh, some spaces right opposite me cleared, and the woman moved opposite me, and I saw what the book was. Sorry, and it was what I thought it was. Pocket Gideon's New Testament. She was avidly reading it on the tube. I leant across... The aisle to her, and I said, I see you're reading the best book in the world. (laughs) And she said something along the lines of, yes, I am. I've been reading it all my life. It's my treasure trove. It's what I build my life on. And then she quoted from, she said something like, and all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And I saw that she was reading from the book of Corinthians, in which that verse comes. And she was hungering and thirsting, even at that stage of her life, to know more and to know him better. And I thought, God, give me that hunger, I pray. Give me that hunger, I pray. Again, you, God, are our God. Earnestly we seek you. We thirst for you. Our whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land. Help. Um, Namibia is a dry and parched land. Uh, On the last day that we were in Namibia, when we went to my sister's funeral, um, we'd had five days of various different gatherings of the family and others in celebration and memorial. And then... On the day before we flew back, we, uh, we went to the game park. And if you look carefully, you can see one of those amazing creations of God, the giraffe. Um, a dry and parched land. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about dry and parched lands. They don't remain dry and parched forever. In the desert, there will be blossom again. And I want you to watch this video time-lapse photography the dry and parched land becomes green and fertile when the rains come what you see with your physical eye is so often a picture of what God is wanting to do spiritually in us, individually and corporately they long for rain they pray for rain and when rain comes Everything changes.
Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Our heart's cry is for you, O Lord, to pour your spirit out and turn the desert into the land of blossom. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. And they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Even so, pour out your spirit, we pray, O oh God. On the dry and parched land of my heart, on the dry and parched land of the church, on the dry and parched land of the nation, send your spirit, we pray, O oh God. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We welcome you, the King of Kings. At one of my sister's memorial services, and when, as I was almost every time asked to say something, I quoted from one of her sermons. She had become a lay minister in uh, the cathedral in Windhoek, uh, the capital of Namibia. And about six years ago, she sent me one of her sermons. It was preached in Advent, the period of preparation for Christmas, which is also for us a, a moment when we remember that Jesus is returning and we look at our lives and prepare. And she had quoted from uh, Jesus in Luke 21 uh, and said, in answer to the question, what should we do in preparation as we wait from that, for that day will come upon everything or everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray. What should we be doing as we give thanks for Queen Elizabeth? We should be keeping alert because one day it'll come to each of us and our longing is not just for us, but for all those around us that would be ready and therefore pray. I don't know whether this prayer will be used at the Queen's funeral, but an Anglican prayer used frequently at funerals 
after the sort of celebration and eulogies, a prayer for those of us that are left, is this. Give us the wisdom and grace to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth. To turn to Christ and follow in his steps in the way that leads to everlasting life. Finally, last time, our whole being, remember. You, God, are our God. Earnestly, we seek you. We thirst for you. Our whole being longs for you.